our theme throughout the entire month of December has simply been the light. Uh, It began with William, as William described what light was. Uh, He went to John chapter 1, which mimics Genesis chapter 1, and he talked about how that the darkness was over the deep in Genesis 1, and then suddenly God says, let there be light, and light burst on the scene, and and in so many ways looked forward to the birth of Jesus when light would once again come into the world. That was followed with Stan. Stan, unfortunately, was scheduled to preach the Sunday of the tornado, and so we had to combine he and John last week. And, and last week, they began to talk about what does light do? And, and Stan talked about the fact that light reveals. Uh, Stan, I'll, I'll not forget for some time that illustration of the roller coaster ride at Opryland and, and what you saw when the lights were off and what you saw when the lights were on. I mean, light reveals things. And he talked about all that light reveals with Jesus coming into the world, followed by John, who talks about life, uh, light loves. And, and he began to talk about how that God is light, but God also is love, and how that, just like light interrupted the darkness in Genesis 1, love has a way of interrupting to do good things in our lives. And he went over to 1 Corinthians 13 and talked about the way that love is meant to interrupt the world. And so my topic for today is that Light gives hope. You know, hope is, is a good word. Uh, it's perhaps the greatest of words. And all of us have been at times where the only thing that we had to hold on to was hope. And that would have been the case in the first century. The first century saw hopelessness running rampant as Jews began to ask a very simple question. Where are the promises God made through the promises? I mean, through the prophets. Where are all of these prophecies? Where are all of these promises that God has made, that God was going to do something in the world? And I mean, if you go back to the Old Testament, you understand why they would ask that question. I mean, we know the prophecies. We've been celebrating them all this month through this season of the year. 2 Samuel 7, 16. A thousand years. A thousand years before the first century, your house, your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Really? I mean, if that's the case, why is Herod the Great on the throne? Why is Nidomian the king of the Jews? That doesn't make any sense. And he's definitely not a descendant of David. It's not David's family on the throne. God, where are your promises? Or you turn to Isaiah 9, 6, where Isaiah said, Listen, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And not only that, but look at what else Isaiah said. 800 years before the first century. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne. Really? And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I mean, mean, God, you keep saying that. I mean, a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, in fact, Daniel comes along 600 years before Jesus. 
And once again, he makes the same promise in the time of those kings. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. We're waiting. God, we're waiting. And it, doesn't, it, it sure doesn't seem like those promises are being fulfilled. And this morning we've been singing specifically about Bethlehem. And John read the text a few moments ago from the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet who was at the same time he was a contemporary of Isaiah. And so we're talking about 800 years before Jesus. And Micah wrote these words, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are, the, are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origin, listen to that last phrase, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. I think sometimes we don't pause long enough to take in this prophecy. I think sometimes we stop right here because the question was asked by Herod the Great, where is the Messiah to be born? And, and the scribes and the priests came together and they said, in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, and then they quote this very text. But there's more to the text. So much more. That is so specific that you have to wonder what in the world were they thinking as they waited and waited and waited. Look at what Micah wrote. Therefore Israel will be abandoned. Israel will be forsaken until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Have you ever noticed that? Israel will be abandoned. The second our glory of God will disappear. And we know that that's exactly what happened. But Micah says, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. And then look at the next verse. He, the one born, will shepherd. Interesting choice of words. Will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Don't miss that last phrase. I don't know of anything that stops the world like Christmas does. All over the world right now, you have people, even people who may not be Christians, but they know what Christmas is. Israel in the first century, even though they had all of these prophecies, couldn't, couldn't figure out what God was waiting for. They were living in a time of incredible hopelessness. I mean, when you looked around as, as a Jew, I mean, what else could you feel? Roman taxation kept almost everyone in poverty. In fact, you turn over to Luke chapter 2, and Joseph and Mary travels to Bethlehem. Why do they travel to Bethlehem? Well, of course, we say, well, to fulfill prophecy. They traveled to Bethlehem because the Romans was making a census in order to pile more taxes on the empire. I mean, that's why they had traveled there. People were drowning in taxation. Greco-Roman idolatry was everywhere. A lot of people don't realize, but if you went up to the top of Bethlehem and just looked up to the north, there was the capital of Galilee. Never mentioned in the New Testament. 
a city that, that I think Jesus probably worked at as a carpenter. I think that's probably where he and Joseph went to work. It was named Sephorus or Sephorus, depending on how you pronounce it. But it was a Greek city built by Herod Antipas. And right in the middle of it was a temple to the Greek gods. I mean, idolatry was everywhere. And not only that, the Roman Empire was filled with Gentile immorality. I hear people so oftentimes say, you know, I don't think the world's ever been as bad as it is now. You haven't read your history books. I mean, you need to go back and you need to get some books from, I mean, the the Greek and, and the Roman period, and you just need to read what was going on at that time. I mean, it will absolutely stun you. And the Jewish divisions made a mockery of the God they served. Would you be a Pharisee? Or would you join the Sadducees? Would you go down to the Dead Sea and join the Essenes? Or would you join the Zealots who were trying to overthrow the Romans? I mean, Israel had divided into all these different factions. And where was God to be found? And so if you can describe the first century in one word... It was a word of waiting, longing, but a lot of hopelessness. But see, if you had read Micah, you would have known that that was the case. You would have known that God was abandoning his people. That the glory was leaving Israel. Until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. As Luke begins to write his gospel. I can't help but in his investigation into the story of this one named Jesus that he just stood there and he looked at Micah 5 over and over and over again thinking, that's it. And then he begins to write his gospel. He begins with darkness, with the taxation, with all the problems that Israel was faced with, the hopelessness, the forgottenness, the abandonedness. Until all at once in the midst of the darkness, not a light comes shining. That's not what burst the darkness open, but it was a sound of a baby crying in the night. You know, all the pictures of Jesus is always pictures of him just smiling, the animals are smiling, everybody's smiling. If you've ever been where a baby is born, that's not the way they come into the world, right? They come in crying and at least for a while just keep on crying. I mean, it's one of those things that gets your attention. And all at once in the silence of Bethlehem's stillness comes the cry of a little baby. And I can't help but think that that as Luke begins to tell this story, that his mind immediately goes back to Micah chapter 5. Because remember what Micah says? Until the time comes for the one who is in labor to give birth to a son. Look at what he says about Jesus. The time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. I mean, almost identical, the words that come out of Micah chapter 5. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
And so all at once, that little baby comes into the world crying, and there's not even room in a, in a, in a house to give birth to him. So he's given birth in a barn, and he's placed inside of a manger. And then Micah says, he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Don't miss that either. Because isn't it fascinating that as soon as Jesus is born, who's going to become the first to hear about it? I mean, if, if, if you are a shepherd, who do you announce the ultimate shepherd's birth to? And guess who Luke tells the story of? The shepherds. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Don't, don't miss the night. Don't miss that. I mean, if you go through the Gospels, yes, sometimes it's just, okay, it's night. That's why they use the word. But oftentimes the darkness is symbolic of something that's going on. And it's symbolic of something going on here. Because you see, the Shekinah glory of God had left Israel until the time, Micah says, when the one who is in labor gives birth to a son. And watch what the text says. All at once, the glory of God shone out in the fields where these shepherds were. An angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And again, it's not just glory, it's the Shekinah glory. It is this incredible brightness of God himself. And of course, they're terrified. Who wouldn't be? Have you struggled with fear lately? You know, every time an angel appears, with the exception of when the angels appeared to Abraham, and I don't know that he knew yet that they were angels. Everybody's scared to death. But as I looked at that word fear, I thought, but you know what? A lot of us are scared to death. A lot of us are struggling with fear. What's yours been lately? Mine last week was going back into the hospital letting them go back up through my wrist to look at my heart. And as I was thinking about that, the night before, and June didn't know it was going on, I slipped into the back room and went back all over my funeral plans. Now, that will get you excited, let me tell you. I mean, I'm looking through there, and I'm like, no, I'm taking them out. No, they're coming out. All right, plugging this one in, I mean... Last time I did that was when I had bypass surgery, you know, several years ago. Yours may be waiting for a doctor to call you, waiting for test results. Yours may be problems going on in your relationship with your spouse or maybe the boss who may step in this week and say, you don't have a job anymore. What are you struggling with when it comes to fear? Because there's hope for those who are terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I love the way he begins. Don't be afraid. But then he says something that I just absolutely love. You see where it says, I will bring you, I bring you good news? That word good news is literally the word gospel. In fact, there's one translation that says, I bring you the gospel. And that's exactly what the text means. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel about Jesus Christ, which will call great joy for all the people. 
And it is that gospel that we still celebrate today, that good news that they announced. And boy, what a difference it made in their lives. And then the angel began to say something amazing. He said, first of all, today. Today. Don't miss that. I mean, David had said sometime, a thousand years earlier. Isaiah had said one day, 700 years earlier. Daniel had said in the days of those kings, 600 years earlier. And Micah had said in Bethlehem, sometime a child will be born. And all at once the angel said, it's not someday, it's not in the future, it's not... Maybe it is today. What I love about Luke is, is that Luke is a lover of the word today. I mean, if you go and begin to just kind of look through Luke's gospel, he uses it more than any of the other gospels. And each time, it's, it's powerful. Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. He gets the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads the prophecy about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. In your hearing. Today. You turn a couple of verses later in Luke chapter 19 or chapters later. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house. A tax collector. Someone who had joined the Romans. Who had turned his back on Israel. And all at once Jesus simply coming to his house. Had turned his life around. And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. And then a few verses later in Luke 23, 43, to a thief hanging on a cross right beside him who during the hours he had suffered realized that there was something unique about the one who is right in the middle. I mean, who is this man? What kind of man is he? And he turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So can I ask you a question? What's your biggest challenge today? It may be getting out of church quick enough to get home and cook, right? Seriously, that's a challenge to get everything ready for the family that's coming over, right? I mean, maybe I've I've got to still go and buy some Christmas presents. I left out someone. I mean, I've got got to go. you You know what I love about being married to June? She takes care of all that for me. She takes care of all of that for me. And some of y'all are thinking, well, what about her Christmas present? I am her Christmas present. (laughs) And she is mine. And I mean that with all my heart. I'm not joking. You know, some time ago she says, do you enjoy buying presents for me? And I said, no. I never know what you want. She said, I don't know what you want either. And I said, can we just be a present to each other? And that's what we've done for years. And we enjoy that. But I mean, what's your biggest challenge? It may be the credit card bill that comes due at the end of the month. Or it may be whether or not you can keep the lights on. It may be whether or not your spouse is going to call the lawyer or your kids are even going to come in for Christmas. I don't know what your challenge is. 
But today, I know who could give you hope. Today in the town of David. The town of David. That's all that the angels had to say. Everybody knew the town of David. The town of David is where the son of David would come out of. Everybody knew that prophecy from Micah 5. And so in the town of David, there's hope. There's hope that's going to come out of it. And so I ask you, where have you placed your hope today? I mean, when you look at at where your life is, where is your hope? And if there's anything I can say to all of us, is that have we forgotten that the promises God made to Israel, He makes to us. You see, Michael wasn't just written for them. Michael was written to us. Isaiah was written to us. 2 Samuel and the promise to David was written to us. Their promises are our promises. And that's where I put my hope. It's the only place you can put it. Because let me tell you, at the end of the day, when death comes knocking on the door, the only thing that counts is where have you put your hope? And Jesus says, it better be in me. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. I love that word Savior. And, and, and one of the things we need to realize is that that word Savior is, is bigger than I think a lot of us as far as meaning that we, we put into it. In fact, if you look at other texts, Mark chapter 3 verse 1, Jesus goes into a synagogue. It's the Sabbath day. There's a man there with a withered hand. And Jesus looks around and he, he asks a very simple question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And there's that word right there, Savior. To save life. And of course you're looking at him going, but, but it's a withered hand. Yes, do you know what a withered hand did to a man in the first century? I mean, do, do you know how hard it is to plow? How hard it is to lay rock? How hard it is to do almost any job if you just have one hand? And I don't know if he once had two healthy hands and one got injured somehow. I don't know if he had, had a, suffered a stroke. I, I don't know why he's in the condition he is. I do know this. Jesus looked at him and Jesus said, it's time for this man to be saved. Not spiritually. I suspect that followed. But physically. And it wasn't just him. You turn over to Matthew 14 and you have good old dear brother Peter who for some weird reason thinks it's smart to step outside of a perfectly good boat. Right? There are certain things you shouldn't do. Mark this down. This is Les Chapman's tip for the day. Don't jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Don't do that. Don't step out in the middle of a lake out of a boat. Just don't do that. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, if you've got a life jacket on, you, got, you know what I'm talking about. You know, and by the way, definitely don't step out of the International Space Station if you're up in space. It won't go well. And Peter, of course, steps out, and he does good for a few steps, and then he saw the wind, and he was afraid, just like so many of us, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And when he said, Lord, save me, he's not talking about washing away his sins. He's talking about get me back in the boat. From what do you need saving today? You see, I think a point we need to remember is Jesus came to save us from more than just our sins. While he came to die on the cross, yes, to wash our sins away, he also came to restore us back to the image of God. He came to make us what God intended us to be. 
the spouse that God intended us to be, the child that God intended us to be. He, he came to turn us into the parents that God intended us to be or the worker that God intended. I, I appreciate so much Steve Barber when he says, listen, I mean, the best gift you can give God is your availability. And that's why Jesus came to save us so that we can become what God wanted us to be. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah. The word Messiah is a special word. It's mostly a Jewish word. Uh, when, when Paul goes out preaching among the Gentiles, he doesn't refer to Jesus as the Messiah. He refers to Jesus as Lord. Because, you see, the Gentiles didn't have this concept of Messiah. Now, they had a Greek word, Christos, meaning anointed one, oftentimes applied to ones like the Roman emperor. But it was the Jews that had this special sense that there is someone called the Messiah coming. You turn over to John chapter 4, even the Samaritans, as Jesus is passing through and stops at a well and talks to a woman. And in the midst of the conversation, she says, I know that Messiah called Christ. Messiah and Christ means the exact same thing, the anointed one. I know he's coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. To which Jesus says, guess what? I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. The announcements came with the angels, and then Jesus announced it himself, and then the apostles went out into the world to announce it. The Messiah has come. And of course, this woman says, he'll explain everything. You ever had a question you wish you had an answer to, but you don't? As, as a preacher, I oftentimes have people say, can I ask you a question? And I go, okay, here it goes. You know? And, and sometimes they're easy questions. And sometimes they're questions for which I don't have an answer. You know, people are like, why is there sin and suffering? Why is there so much terrible news in the world? I mean, why, why does God allow all this to happen? And I say, we'll just have to wait, and God will explain it. Or, or, or maybe another question is, why? Why has my loved one, why has this tragedy happened at this point in time? I mean, they, they were serving God, they were living for God, and all at once their life's been snuffed out. Why? I don't have an answer for that. I wish they did. I just don't. But like the Samaritan woman, I know there's one who can answer those questions. And whatever questions any of us have, Jesus has the ability and will one day answer them all. And then the angel finishes with these words. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Once again, I think we miss the significance of this phrase. Stan's been driving it home big time, you know, trying to say, listen, we need to understand when they use that word kurios, that word Lord, which in the Hebrew is Adonai. I mean, what's going on there? And one of the things you know if you've got a King James Version, in fact, most translations of the Bible, is that when they begin to translate, they do not translate the name of God. We know it best if we think we're close as Yahweh. But most translations don't translate it. What they do is they translate what the Jews do. You see, Jews do not pronounce the name of God. Instead, they'll refer to the one who has the name, you know. And, and, and they don't even spell out 
the word God in English over in Israel. They'll always leave out the O right in the middle of it because they don't want to in any way bring disrespect to the name of God. And so when you're taking Hebrew, and I know Rodney taught this over and over and over again, when you come to the name, you substitute for the name of God the word Adonai, Lord. And so when the angel said, He is the Messiah, the Lord, They were saying, he's not just a human being. He's a baby. He's taking human flesh. But he is actually the God of Israel who has come to fix what we couldn't fix. We serve Jesus of Nazareth who is the Lord, who is the God, who is the creator of all things and who came to save us. That's who we serve. And so the light gives us hope. Why? Why is there so much hope in the light? Because the Lord is that light. And he's the only hope for the entire world. We need to preach that. We need to believe it. And we need to stand on it. I hope you will today. We're going to sing another song. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you once followed Jesus, but you thought, I'm just not sure Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. Perhaps it's time to reconsider. We're down front to help. I'll be right down here. We have men who have elders' names on. They'll be around after services. If you need to be prayed with, they would be honored to do that. Let us know how we can help you. Right now, as together we stand and sing.